A Call Confessions is brought to you commercial free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Ed Sanders is responsible for creating and promoting the widely disseminated myth that Charles Manson and his communal family were Satanists, specifically in his book, The Family. Sanders' book, that is, not Manson's. This myth, in turn, fed the notion that California was a breeding ground for devil-worshipping cults whose influence was spreading across the United States and into Canada and Europe, threatening to convert your teenager and abduct your eight-year-old. From the perspective of the satanic panic of the 1980s and 1990s, and what I'm calling the satanic panic revival, which is still in progress, Charles Manson was the original boogeyman, in more ways than one. After all, uh, Manson's claim to fame took place in 69, and so Manson's involvement in any cults, uh, fictional or otherwise, would have taken place in the 60s and would have continued to have influence through the 70s. So Manson sort of sets the stage here. I'm just going to riff for a second here, friends, off script. If you've heard other podcasts talk about Charles Manson, this is not going to be anything like those. This is not a true crime exploration. I'm really very interested specifically in the myth that was propagated about Manson by Ed Sanders. And and maybe in 2021, we don't realize just how influential the idea that Manson was part of a cult, not just running his little commune, but part of something larger, uh, a nationwide or international cabal. This was a very influential idea in the 1970s when Ed Sanders' book came out and fed the panic of the 80s and continues to feed forward into 2021 the notion that such a cabal exists. And so today on Occult Confessions, we are going to get to the bottom of this Manson myth and consider how it shaped the dialogue around ritual evil in the United States in the decade before it would bloom into a full-out moral panic. There are no two people I would rather discuss Charles Manson with than our Grand Master of the Order, Olivia Literal. Hello. What's up? You know, I feel like I should have listened to some some of Manson's music before we did this. You know, a little refresher. Or, or Beausoleil. Get in the place. Huh? Or Beausoleil's music. I remember looking into it like years ago and some of it was kind of good. I don't know. You know. The Manson music? Yeah, some of this stuff wasn't that bad. Well, the Beach Boys thought it was okay. Yeah, I can confirm that it's pretty good. That is the voice of Brie Literal, our metallurgic prophet. Hi, guys. I would suggest a song called Cease to Exist, which is the song that the Beach Boys ripped off into, uh, I think it's called Never Learn Not to Love, which sounds like the dumbest song title ever. Hey, Manson was super don't you say that of the Beach Boys. I'm sorry. I'm on Manson's side <laughs> of the Beach Boys dilemma. You respect. God only knows. Okay. Cease to Exist is actually a really good song. <laughs> Just saying. Let's pledge it out. We the members of the secret order of alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Felt pretty good. Felt pretty good. All right, Olivia, let's do this plugs, please. Plug, plug, plug. We got a nice healthy crew again to welcome into the family of patrons. Very grateful to these folks. Uh, it's essential that this group keep growing, as I mentioned. 
you know, we do have an annual option before I, I mention these folks' names, uh, where for just 12 bucks for the year, 12 bucks for the year, uh, you can get access to our bonus content. So uh, something to think about. Yeah, if, if you're on a tight budget, that's a, that's a nice way to go. But of course, you get more benefits as you uh, go up the chain. We want to welcome Kiefel A, or Kiefel A, I'm going to hedge my bets there, Josh C, Greg D, Aaron D, William G, Lorenzo W, James C, David M, and we want to thank Sam L for the pledge bump. Thanks for the bump there, Sam. Uh, so those are the folks we're welcoming to the crew. Ladies, some uh, some encouragement for our patrons, or love? We love you. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> that weird. Nice. That all I keep thinking about when you say these names now are people's addresses, which sounds very creepy. That does, Olivia. Oh, yeah. right, because you, you do the mailers, yeah. You get a mail, and you get a mail, and we support the postal service. <laughs> like, yes. I'm sorry. Yes, All right, do. that took a turn. <laughs> All right, uh, it, I, don't, I don't need to say too much more on the plugs today, but I do want to make mention of something that I only just noticed before we began recording tonight. Uh, our series has begun to attract, um, I don't, how do I say this, conspiracy believers, uh, and and I, I sort of expected this would happen. I didn't expect it would happen with the Black Mass episodes. Uh, so it's happened a little earlier uh, than I believed. But um, these folks are going to be taking to the review sections of iTunes and, and wherever they can to uh, say some nonsense about us, which is fine. Uh, they're entitled to, to do that. Uh, but I want to ask our listeners, particularly if you're listening on Apple, uh, to just jump on and, and give us a rating so that um, we don't get dragged down by uh, these folks who are spouting their um, their stuff on on our review page. I'm being as kind as I can here, guys. You're really trying. <laughs> I know. I know. There's all these words I want to say, these nouns I would like to use, but I'm just I'm keeping it civil here. Uh, but we don't want our, our, our rating to drop down into the toilet because we're being attacked by these folks. So please, 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 um, if you're able to, if you're listening on iTunes in particular, just uh, eat, or even drop a word. What, what do we like, Olivia? A plus. Great. <laughs> Love, Love it. Love it. A plus. <laughs> Love it. A+. The Loveits are my favorites. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's all good. You don't have to write a novel, uh, but, you know, we just need to be mindful of uh, keeping these folks contained. Let's to be say. fair, I feel like I was a little... I was a little harsh last episode, but I, I guess, but that doesn't um, entitle anyone to promote Pizzagate on our our review no. page. No, yeah, yeah, but you so, know, you, that's you're entitled to your opinion. So were they, but promoting mm. Pizzagate on our our reviews is um, problematic at best. Mm. Boy, I'm being super democratic. Let's close up those plugs. Plug, plug, plug. Okay, let's get into the family. Shall we? Yes. All right. So the Manson family was vaguely defined and amorphous. You, you, you two can feel free to correct me. I know that you're Manson enthusiasts both. So if you feel like I say anything off kilter here, just go ahead and, and uh, correct me. Uh, but they were a fairly amorphous group with some members like Squeaky Fromm and Mary Bruner, Patricia Krenwinkle, Susan Atkins, Ella Yeller, Bailey, Diane Snake Lake. 
Whew, those are just that's just the beginning. Um, who were with Manson for a year or more? Okay, well that that might be pretty close to everybody who was with him for a year or more. Uh, I'm not going to quiz you guys. If you have any other names you want to toss in, feel free. I think one of the more important ones is Tex Watson. He's probably one of the saddest stories in the whole family too. Yeah, well, Tex yeah. was not there in the beginning, but yes, I agree. We'll get to Tex, and uh, I'll let you weigh in on Tex. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so these ladies were with uh, Manson more or less from the beginning, and then we had other members like Bobby Beausoleil in particular, uh, folks like Dan DiCarlo, who came a bit later to the party. They tended, Bobby Beausoleil in particular, came to, tended to come and go. So he was not with Manson from the time Manson got out of jail. Uh, he he came and then he left and they came and he left, sort of had his own things going on. And, and Dan DiCarlo was involved with motorcycle clubs. So some people in the Manson family had outside affiliations. Manson himself wasn't always with his family. He sometimes took weeks away from them and he split up the family on multiple occasions as they moved to various ranches and parks and crash pads around California in an ever-changing fleet of vehicles in the late 1960s because one would break down and then they would just get another one somehow and paint the van black and off they go again. The bus, sorry, the black bus. Their occupations were also very fluid. They made music. As Bree was mentioning, Manson recorded a whole album uh, and wrote at least part of a song recorded by Olivia's favorite, the Beach Boys. And they very nearly starred in a documentary produced by this guy, Terry Melcher, who was very well connected in Hollywood and uh, with the record industry. They helped run George Spahn's ranch, which was a spot that had been used to make B-Westerns in the decades before and was still used for the occasional film shoot while the Manson family lived there. If you've seen the Tarantino movie most recently, it does a reasonable job of maybe not telling the story in any kind of substantive way, but at least shows you the ranch, right? Have you guys seen the Tarantino movie? Yeah. 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 What do, how accurate would you say the Tarantino movie is? Uh, I mean... Except I for the end, of there, course. there, so... But... What? It, it, huh? it wasn't there? What did you <laughs> no, say? I said I wasn't Olivia? there, you know, to know how how it really looked with Manson, but... Yeah. I mean, in theory, oh, I guess yeah. it aesthetically felt right. Yeah. Okay. It was kind of creepy. I don't know. The part where they were like, just staring at him. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. talking about? When Brad Pitt shows up yeah. at the ranch. Yeah. And then all these weird aged looking girls, because they were like maybe 18, but also 16 or just yeah. staring at him. That felt yeah. right. That was probably accurate. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I think they were far busier, though, on the ranch than they seemed to be in the movie. It seemed like they were all just hanging around, but they were yeah, very they were busy on the ranch. All watching TV and one TV and right. being weird. And yeah, I don't no, know. They, they were pretty well occupied, but we'll get there. So at the ranch, Manson's family cleaned up after and rented horses. Actually, we're getting there right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they cleaned up after and rented horses to tourists. They showed a bit of that. They cooked for the ranch hands in exchange for a place to stay. And the girls built their own dune buggies, which they rode around the property. The girls are, I think, not given adequate amount of credit because we worked so hard to make Manson out to be the sort of Svengali who controlled all of them. And certainly they had an unusual relationship, but these were very capable young women. They could do some stuff. Right? Am I wrong? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, they I were mean, building also your own dune like, buggy and. They weren't so stupid. 
because like that's why right. he later yeah. had to come up with you know more and more shit to to hold him down but yeah but he yeah. had to keep spinning up yeah so we'll dispel that myth a bit too uh, on the seedier side of things the family consorted with biker gangs and moved drugs in and around southern california yes yeah Okay. They lived in a fairly mild, this is nice, of fact checkers. I live in a fairly mild, (laughs) live fact checking. They live in a fairly mild, but vaguely dangerous sort of outlaw lifestyle. Yeah, Yeah, what, Brie? Well, no, it's just because with the whole drug thing comes along the prospect of the only murder Manson possibly actually did by his own hand. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, go go ahead and get into that right now. I think this is fine time for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, this is good. This is a good moment. Okay. So are you talking about the African-American man he was supposed to have killed? Yeah. Um, what was the drug dealer's name? He supposedly shot this guy. Um, but it's not really clear if Manson actually did. It was very, it's very convoluted. It's very and he was confusing. supposed to have been a competing drug dealer or something, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Because at one point he claimed, yeah, I shot this guy. But then later he was like, okay, maybe I didn't actually shoot this guy. So we don't know if it was because he was trying to be like, I'm big bad man. But then he was like, I actually didn't do this and I don't want to get charged for it. But I, I mean, I this is good though, because it gets at the wider point I'm trying to make. Like we think we have this clear, you know, the myth of Manson is, you know, he's this very clear controlling guy. But the truth is it is all muddy because the man is all over the place. And the family's all over the place. And what are they supposed to be doing? And where do they live? <laughs> what is their goal? None of that is really set in stone. It's a very ambiguous thing. The whole Manson phenomenon is an ambiguous thing. I mean, is that is that fair? Well, yeah. I think that is like his whole life was kind of like that. Yeah. Like he he was he was I don't know scrapping and fighting and going to prison like when he was young. Like that's all he ever knew. He also, yeah. his dad was not in his life. And his mm-hmm. mom... I think it was like, the mom used him for cons and stuff. Yeah, it was a weird relationship. She kind of... Yeah, because he did his own, like, petty crimes for a while, and that's how he got put in juvie. Because he loved he loved going to prison. It Which was... is bizarre, because of the amount of times he was assaulted in prison. It better than being homeless, apparently. Yeah, I guess. He liked being institutionalized. He had shelter and food. Yeah. That's what he always said, that that was, he thrived like in prison. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, we just went all over the place. It's all good. We it's really did. It's good. Now set we're the tone. convoluted. Set the yeah, tone. Yeah, we are. We are. The guys. family mooched off rock stars. They lived for a while in Dennis Wilson's house, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, until his manager kicked them out because Dennis oh. Wilson was not, didn't have the backbone apparently to kick them out himself. His manager had to do it. He literally, he went away, I think. And then the manager came back and said, you guys got to get out of here. Uh, They dumpster dove behind grocery stores for their food. They plotted grand heists that they never pulled off and committed, committed various petty acts of shoplifting. So there's the family. Manson, for his part, fantasized about a race war. He gave runaways a place to belong. He threatened his girls with violence. He coerced his girls into sex. He pimped his girls to male family members. He outran police cars. He collected guitars and drums and buses as easily as he gave them away. And he talked, as I think you're already getting the sense, a hell of a lot of nonsense. That's Manson, right? That gives us a pretty good Manson. Yeah. Kind I mean, of. Also, he thought he was Jesus. So 
<laughs> there was a bit of confusion. You can do there. all that if he wants, huh? So, is he a nice guy? Is he a terrible guy? Is he evil? I, don't, I think we can't say the man is evil. Just, you know, giving runaways a place to belong and giving things away to people. He's not purely evil the way he's been made out to be. But the rest of this stuff is pretty bad. Well, the thing about Manson that is what kind of blurs the line for him when it comes to being evil or being not is that his way of coercion wasn't necessarily like he didn't take away a choice. Everybody had a choice actively in his group. That's the thing that's always so confusing about the crimes that are going to happen is he always gave everybody a quote unquote choice, but he always worked it around where the choice that they chose, which of course was always the one that Manson wanted them to choose was completely their own idea. He always spun it as it's their idea. It's a little bit like outsmarting a toddler, but he's doing it on a much higher level. Yeah, and plus with all the drugs they were on, like, yeah. it made it that much easier. Well, I think the turning point for him, too, like, morally and ethically was really when he did have to start to scramble and come up with the race worst, like, shit. Like, yeah. he had to hardcore, like, drill that in to keep the people there and keep them, quote, yeah. motivated, you know? I right, think, I even know. though it was just beside the point, really, with the murders, but he's yeah. constantly coming up with these myths and ideas and stories. I think that's where he, he started fueling a mini army. Well, that, and then when he saw what, I don't know if you'll talk about, but what happened with Tex Watson, when he saw how that changed him, I think that also really was a big turning point for Manson, Yeah, too. you really want to talk about Tex. We're getting to Tex, I promise. I know. I, he's like, to <laughs> me, Tex. he's my favorite kind of. part about we'll get this to Tex. story. Well, good. Well, you can tell us more about text when we get there. Um, okay, anyway. Uh, the point I'm trying to make here is, not that Manson's a cool guy, but we are not saying that <laughs> by any stretch today. Uh, he's a messy human being, uh, definitely problematic, probably belonged in jail from his own perspective. Um, but by no means this sort of like incarnation of Satan that we imagine. And it makes it difficult to say exactly what him or his family wanted if they wanted anything in particular at all when they committed the murders that made them infamous. Getting back to Ed Sanders, who wrote this book, and this is a guy we're about to spend a lot of time on, or some time on, so we get a sense for who he is, because Ed Sanders is as much a part of the story as Charlie Manson. Ed Sanders didn't exactly clear much up about Manson's story with his best-selling book, which came out, it was like one of the first books that was produced about the Manson murders. He was so deep into the scene. He attended the trials himself. He interviewed everyone who'd ever smelled a Manson family member. He masqueraded as a pornographer to try and get copies of the tapes the family had allegedly produced and planned to distribute, like Manson home pornography. Great. He couldn't get enough perspective to write a clear account of what the family was and what it wanted. Instead... Sanders ended up propagating a host of legends about Manson and the family that made his readers believe the Manson family were only the tip of a much larger satanic iceberg threatening to sink the American way of life by turning all of our teenage sons and daughters into incestuous nudist murderers. Amen. I'm actively oh. shaking my head right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's talk about Ed Sanders. We... Probably someone most of our listeners are hearing about for the very first time. But everything we think we know about Manson 
more or less goes from comes from Ed Sanders and uh, uh, the prosecutor Bugliosi, but that's a separate story. But Ed Sanders told the story. Like the, the prosecutor told a certain story in court. The story that ended up really taking off is the Sanders narrative. Of the many books written about the sensation caused by the Manson family and their murders, Sanders was among the first out of the gate with what amounted to a very thorough account of Manson's and his family's lives as well as the murders. The book went into multiple reissues beginning in the 1970s and was most recently reissued in 2002. By virtue of the fact that Sanders was among the first to frame the story, even today, writers like Jeffrey Melnick, whose work I respect on the Manson family, must at least respond to Sanders' account when they're writing their own take on the Manson family. To write his book on Manson's family, Sanders spent years in and around Los Angeles and San Francisco. He read court transcripts, he dug through newspaper archives, he donned disguises, went undercover uh, in a variety of roles, truth be told. He posted ads for people to come forward. Okay, now here's the real thing. He posted ads for people to come forward with any information they might have about the Manson family. Any ideas why this might be a problem? People can just come up with all kinds of shit. What do you mean? (laughs) And they did. Yes, that's exactly what happened. If you say, have you heard anything? You're going to get everything. (laughs) Something, yeah. (laughs) And this was the downfall of the investigation, although Sanders never saw it that way. As he says in the introduction to his book, he treated everything he gathered as data. So even crazy Aunt Maud around the corner and up the street who thinks she heard that Charlie Manson one time came around into her back porch and done killed her rabbit. (sighs) That's okay. That's data. That counts. He seems never to have reflected on whether or not what he was hearing, particularly from the people who responded to his ad, were rumors. He included everything that struck his fancy in the book, marking some rumors as legend and others as eyewitness accounts. It's really even hard to tell the difference as you're reading. Hearsay. Okay, so on hearsay, an unfortunate pair of words jumps off the page as Sanders is walking through a story he heard of Manson's participation in an exorcism with a branch of of the Process Church in San Francisco, which we're going to get to. He says a former college teacher named Smith said, he said, allegedly alleged, This college teacher named Smith allegedly alleged. Okay. In other words, what Sanders is relating is information he heard from someone about what someone else said. Hearsay, not just hearsay, hearsay about hearsay. Yeah, that's not, that's not flying in any kind of judicial system. I don't care what era you're in. Great. Or, or a this scholarly text or good fantastic. investigative journalism. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, is not all that. okay. That's... Oh, my God. So here's the weird thing about Sanders. I mean, all of this is very uh, uh, sort of strange. It's like a, like a kind of Geraldo character almost putting on these disguises and running through <laughs> these, uh, you know, porn shops and whatever. But he's sort of an odd mouthpiece to promote the satanic panic. After dropping out of the University of Missouri in 1958, and, and by satanic panic, I have to say, I'm, I'm using um, sort of anachronistic because there is no satanic panic really until the 1980s. It's not invented until the 1980s. But this book, which is written in the 70s, along with uh, Johnny Todd, who we talked about, uh, Bree and, and John and I, and um, Mike Warrenkey's Satan Seller, these three figures... Uh, are regarded by uh, Bill Ellis, anyway, 
as sort of like the proto-satanic panic. They create the blueprint for the satanic panic to follow. So what, 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 anyway, so (laughs) all that having been said, Sanders drops out of the University of Missouri in 1958. He becomes an independent journalist. During the October 1967 March on the Pentagon to protest the Vietnam War, Sanders participated in a highly publicized New Age countercultural attempt to exorcise and levitate the Pentagon. I'm sorry, what? Can you repeat oh. that for me? <laughs> okay. Sanders, who is the mouth a mouthpiece of the Manson Satanic Panic myth, mm-hmm. personally participated in an exercise to exorcise and levitate the Pentagon. And how did that work for them? I was about to say. I will tell you. <laughs> The exorcism was based on the idea that the Pentagon was possessed by a deep evil which had inspired the war uh, with the building itself sort of marking the perimeter of a demonic pentagram. So you could see, you could draw the pentagram inside there. Sanders claims to have written the chant they used for the levitation. He personally consulted a Hittite book and combined it with what he read uh, of Greco-Roman magical formulae. So he's a student of occultism, Ed Sanders. Activist and provocateur Abby Hoffman, famous figure of this period. If you've never heard the name Abby Hoffman, look him up. Fantastic character. Uh, gener- he almost. Uh, w- w- I'm, I'm a big fan of Grace Slick of Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship. And uh, she just so happened to have gone to an all-girls school with Nixon's daughter when she was in high school uh so this you know huge you know acid rock hero went to went to all girls school with richard nixon's daughter and she was accidentally invited to a tea party with all the other girls who went to the high school with richard nixon's daughter and she brought abby hoffman with her and they wouldn't let him in uh she had planned (laughs) to drop acid in the punch when she got amen (laughs) it's a good thing they didn't let him in anyhow that's one of my favorite Abby Hoffman stories, because it's also a Grace Slick story. So anyway, Abby Hoffman generated publicity for the exorcism by getting himself arrested for measuring the building in order to find out, quote, how many witches we would need oh my <laughs> to, God. to stand around the Pentagon. Oh, Science. <laughs> right now. This isn't real. <laughs> well, I mean, you can see they have a very, they have a sense of humor about it, right? Yeah. So it's not, it's not fully uh, in I... earnest. <laughs> So, can you imagine him just like walking around the Pentagon and the guy's like, hey, what are you up to there? Measuring the number of witches we need. (laughs) So needless to say, the group was not permitted to encircle the Pentagon (laughs) (laughs) for national security reasons. Uh, But Norman Mailer, famous uh, writer of the the 1960s, uh, 1950s, he wrote about this event, and he said they performed uh, what he called a fairly impressive ritual anyhow, chanting their vaguely Gardnerian verses from a flatbread truck in an adjacent parking lot. So they sort of held this big protest in the parking lot next to the Pentagon, which is still pretty symbolically powerful. Okay, so remember that Ed Sanders is in this whole scene, this whole counterculture thing with a, a cult and witches and all this stuff, and he's writing the chant himself. Despite all this, 
1971, he was accused, accusing a variety of new religious movements in and around California of inspiring Manson's murder conspiracy, derisively punctuating what he very likely hyperbolized, if not entirely fabricated, of their rituals, uh, with a phrase he liked to use over and over again, ooh-ee-oo. Ooh-ee-oo. Ooh-ee-oo, yeah. Ooh-ee-oo. He loved this phrase. So whenever he would say something, you know, about ritual or whatever, he would punctuate it to mock it with you I hate that. Right. He's he's sort of a anyway. He's he's got a tone that you really have to get used to when you're reading him. It, it, when I say he's doing this ritual, it's not just Abby Hoffman and, and these sort of countercultural figures. It's also like the early, like the beginners of American Druidism and Wicca. Like these people are there. The American Wiccans, who you know, the, the pioneering Wiccans in America were the 1970s crew. They're attending this thing, too. And Sanders is rubbing elbows with them. He knows them. And yet here he is with this book. It's very strange. The best I'm able to make sense of it, somewhere in his head, Sanders drew a line between the white magic he engaged with at the Pentagon and the black satanic magic he heard about in California. He didn't know or didn't care about the degree to which he was contributing to conspiratorial anti-occultism, for example, that occult, the anti-occultism preached by John Todd and Mike Warnke. And these guys would go on to capitalize on this exact line of thinking, uh, beginning in the 1970s, and then after uh, Michelle Smith's book, the 1980s, we have the whole satanic panic and the daycare crisis and everything that follows. But, you know, the Manson myth is an important part of setting the stage culturally. I, I can't say that enough. Okay, are we ready to get into Manson and Satan? I guess. Let's do it. An imaginary love story. Yeah, it doesn't exist. So, Sanders tells a paradoxical story about Charles Manson at once mystically endowed and incredibly self-deluded. Both of these things are true about Manson from Sanders' perspective. He's mystically powerful and deeply self-deluded. I guess it's possible to be both, but anyhow... This is his version of Manson, which is deeply colored by rumor and legend. He begins by describing Manson as a man who loved to be institutionalized. Now, Olivia, you, you this bears out, yeah? Yeah, okay. For you? Sure. He was in and out of prison beginning at the age of 13. I guess that was when he first went to juvie. Uh, he, when he was released from prison uh, for the fateful stretch beginning on March 21st, 1967, until he was arrested for his role in the Hinman Tate LaBianca murders, uh, Sanders shares a legend of Manson trying to walk back through the gates into the prison. Have you two heard this story? So on March 21st, 1967, they let him go, and he's like, uh, no, yeah. and he tries to walk oh, back Yeah, I think I've jail. heard this. In jail, Manson learned to play the guitar, uh, connecting with, and this is true, Rolling Stones associate and music insider Phil Kaufman, uh, who had been booked on a marijuana charge. Um, Phil Kaufman's also an, uh, an interesting figure. Um, but anyway, he, he would frequently, well, not frequently, but a time or two, he helped the Rolling Stones on the road when they were touring around California. And he, he's a friend of Manson. Sanders also tells uh, strange tales of Manson perfecting the art of psychological manipulation and hypnosis. Here's where it gets weird. He studied Scientology... He read the book Transactional Analysis, and he learned from the pimps how to control women. He also learned magic, warlockery, say that again, warlockery, 
astral projection, astral projection, and Rosicrucianism. I did not expect that to be what you just said. That last one, no. I don't know why, <laughs> no. but I really didn't the expect last one it. Threw yeah. you for a loop. It really <laughs> did. I was like, what? <laughs> wow. He learned to worship at the Rosy Cross in an alchemical okay. fashion. Anticlimactic. I don't know. Anyway. At the McNeil, oh, well, I'm going to give you a climax here. At the McNeil Island Penitentiary, this is a Sanders story. Each prisoner had a pair of headphones by their beds to listen to the prison radio station. So they're sort of like hanging right by their heads when they slept at night. Manson contrived to have subliminal messages played through the headphones while these guys slept, which allowed him to manipulate the results of a basketball game and a talent show both of which he bet on, and he racked in the cigarette packs as a result. For a minute, I forgot he was in prison, and I was like, wow, a talent show? <laughs> prison talent show, yeah. <laughs> Just I the town talent seconds. show. <laughs> yeah, I was like, where does he stop So here? Sanders is saying that the man can use subliminal messages to control people's behavior through headphones hanging near their heads. That's a lot to... <laughs> That's just a blatant lie. It feels like an exaggeration. Okay. At least. Do you think that there's it's even remotely possible that you could get me to lose a basketball game? I think it's a metaphor for the fact that he was like kind of a master manipulator. He's a very. So you want to read Ed Sanders like the Bible? (laughs) No. Yes. (laughs) It's metaphorical. Yeah. No, I, I guess I'm giving. I'm giving Ed too much credit. Yeah, ma- well, I, no, I, I, he- Olivia, I, I think I get what you mean, but I don't think Ed's on the same wavelength as we are with that. No, you're right. He he means it literally. He means he it literally. It's real. Probably he yeah. really isn't clear. Like when you read this, when the three of us, you know, when you hear, when you two hear this, I read this. It's crazy. I mean, no way that this this is not human. This is not a thing that this is not reality. But Sanders just puts it in there. He doesn't say, you know, there's a legend or a rumor. He just puts it in there. So you have to have that response all on your own. So the man is 32 years old. Now he's out of prison. I'm talking about Manson again. He starts to build his family in San Francisco. He gets Mary Bruner pregnant, which is the only known instance of a Manson inseminated pregnancy in the family, despite claims that Manson had sex with all the girls. The fact that Manson actively encouraged pregnancy and discouraged contraceptives coupled with his extreme promiscuity raises some questions about Manson's fertility, but I'm going to say it's not our project to diagnose Manson today, so we're going to, we'll leave that where it is unless either of you would like to comment on this issue. It's certainly no, odd. No. I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> it is, is weird, weird, but I guess that's a valid point, yeah. I mean, maybe his little boys were so spent because he was having so much sex, or maybe he wasn't actually having sex the way we think he was. And also the amount of drugs they were doing, too, probably didn't help with that. Oh, yeah, that's not good for your counts. Yeah, no. So, uh, in 67, Manson took acid for the first time in San Francisco. A perfect time, really, to be taking acid in San Francisco. Uh, And that caused him to have, uh, as I think one of you has already alluded to, a crucifixion trip and identify with Jesus of Nazareth, or really Jesus Christ. Same person, but, you know, he's going with the Christ angle. He went around kissing people's feet and asking, are you ready to die? And if they said yes, he would tell them to live forever. Mm. 
kind of nice. <laughs> what a <laughs> The first man. part is threatening. Second part's kind of nice. Bummed out by the increasingly violent biker gang scene in The Hate, he decided to move his family south. He added Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Diane Lake to his family, among others, and crossed paths with Bobby Beausoleil. Although they did not in any meaningful sense join together, Bobby had his crew, Charlie had his. On April the 1st, 1968, he had his son, Valentine Michael, or Valentine Michael. I don't really know. Family called him Pooh Bear. Which yeah, is kind of that's sweet. a weird one. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's there's all there's sort of these humanizing moments. Like it's not just this catalog of of horrors by this terror these terrible people. It's sort of sweet. They all had weird nicknames though. Yeah, right? they did. He would give like he would like it was the, through like an acid ceremony, if I'm correct. He would like christen them with like gr- weird nicknames. Often it had to do with sex too, like the sounds they would yeah. make during sex or the way they moved. Also, how yeah. they looked for a certain individual. That's an unfortunate nickname she received. Who are you talking about? Uh, Fat Patty. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Didn't work hard at that one. Yeah. He's yeah, that's like a uh, Fat Patty. <laughs> he just threw it out there and just was like, yep, you are Fat Patty now. Yeah, that it's is rough. mean. That's just plain out mean. Yeah. Uh, so, Pooh Bear, by contrast. Anyway, uh, working through. <laughs> connections including phil kaufman uh who remember we he met in jail he met phil kaufman in jail happened to be an associate of the rolling stones uh the family ended up meeting dennis wilson and then crashing at his place dennis wilson brian wilson the beach boys manson added more girls to his family including 14 year old ruth ann morehouse when her father, a preacher named Dean, came to rescue Ruth Ann, Manson persuaded him to drop acid instead, and Dean ended up joining the family himself for an extended period. Manson, I think, had a sixth sense for people's weakness. 100%. Well, yeah, he that's how he got people in. He could always tell exactly what that person needed to hear exactly when he was courting them. Every time. Uh, but 14 years old, uh, I, I don't want to overlook this fact. There are a number of girls we would call underage in the Manson family. At Wilson's house, uh, Dennis Wilson's house, Manson met wig shop owner Charlie Tex Watson, who would go on to play a major role in the Tate-LaBiaca murders. Watson was so enamored of Manson that he came to believe that he psychically united with Charlie Manson. Charlie Watson and Charlie Manson became one and the same in Tex Watson's head. He was Charlie. Charlie was Watson. What do you want to say about Tex before we Tex? keep going, Brie? Oh my god. Okay. He's so... His story in this is so sad in so many ways because not only did he have that, but there's the point... This is also, in my opinion, one of the turning points for Charlie is um, there's a point where Tex Watson... Um, I forget who in the family, they were, this is one of their drug things, and somebody got their hands on belladonna root. With belladonna root, it can either kill you, or horribly destroy your mind, or get you really high if it's done properly. Yes. You have well to steep medieval it poison and, properly. Yeah. yeah, renaissance poison, yeah, it was frequently used. Well, when they were doing it, Tex got really impatient and decided that before it was ready, before it was done seeping and brewing, he was just going to go ahead and drink it straight. 
And um, I thought he ate it. He he ate the root. Yeah, um, it was yeah, in seeping, like he, and he ate this like he ate the actual um, steeping root. Like it was bad. So he like ripped it out of the water and just took a bite. He basically yeah, and um, I forget. It was like a couple weeks. It was a few weeks where uh, the family kind of lost track of him, and when they finally found him again, he was basically crawling on all fours, thinking he was a bus. He completely wow. broke his mind. And this was the point where I think it also snapped for Charlie, where this is when Tex got super violent. He got super unstable. And this was a point where Charlie realized they will do anything to please me, especially now that I have this raging man, Tex, who's just lost his mind. I have com- complete control over everybody. And this is the way to do it. It was just so he became like a golem almost of, of Charlie Basically. Manson, like a violent golem. Yeah. He well, and Tex also kind of knew who to, I think, kind of to some capacity to who to bring with him, definitely. Because, like, Susan, Susan was like, she was sketched too, like, yeah. she was kind of not right well, anyway. That's why Charlie put him in charge of it. He was like, Tex, you're in charge of this, bring these people when it comes to the murders, you mean? Yeah, he put yeah. him in charge of the um, the Tate house. Writing about the spring and summer of 1968, Sanders makes a series of vague claims about Manson's interaction with satanic groups. First, were the biker gangs, namely the Satan Slaves, Straight Satans, and Jokers Out of Hell. (laughs) (laughs) So So creative. (laughs) Fair enough. I mean, there's a lot of Satan going on there. uh, And those are all really variations on the more famous Hell's Angels, right? So all of them have these sort of satanic names to them. But that doesn't mean that they're actually worshipping Satan or involved. Nobody's calling Anton LaVey on the phone once they get to the biker bar. If only. (laughs) Right? (laughs) He shows up all bald with all his ritual implements and everybody strips yeah. naked. Yep. So uh, <laughs> Danny DiCarlo <laughs> of the Straight Satans would become a member of the family, but his gang so disliked Manson that they refused to associate with Manson and negotiated unsuccessfully to get DiCarlo out of the Spawn ranch. So while there are these associations with biker gangs, the biker gangs kind of hated Charlie and didn't want to have anything to do with him. Arguably, Sanders' most controversial claim is that Manson took lessons from the solar temple of the Ordo Templi Orientis, and a group that Sanders calls the Final Church of Judgment. So these are two separate organizations, uh, and Sanders is claiming that Manson was involved with both of them. The Final Church of Judgment is not really the name of the group. It was actually the Process Church of the Final Judgment. But because Sanders is literally just writing down everything he hears, he calls them by this name. This is going to become important, Sanders' uh, inaccuracies in naming things. Um, so they believe, or Sanders believed, or wrote anyway, that these groups helped Manson reach the conclusion that he was not only Christ, but also Satan. Now, had either of you heard this idea that Manson believed himself to be Satan? No. Not directly. I don't think so. I think I, I've only heard, like, the, the whole Jesus and man's will kind of i've heard him being along the lines of like both opposing forces he was like if you have to be one you have to be the other but not necessarily directly claiming to be both jesus and satan more so the black and the white thing wait so when when is he when did he have time to be with uh, studying under these groups he did not in my opinion but we're, we're gonna get there 
I'm going. I'm going now. Okay. Okay. Sanders claims that Manson attended first an exorcism at the Process Church, where the church's leader, who was only called Father P in the text, threatened to stab a man that he'd bound and gagged with a sharpened stake. Manson, apparently inspired by the church's activities, would string himself up on a cross while some of his girls knelt at his feet and sacrificed animals. Animal sacrifice also links Manson to a group led by a woman calling herself Circe, as well as the Solar Lodge, and another likely imaginary group called the 4P Movement. So it starts to spiral into all these splinter groups. I'm going to take each of them one at a time, though, so don't worry. Okay, but before I do it, I need to step out of Sanders' narrative and talk a little bit about uh, who the groups were historically, if they existed, and how they relate to what Sanders is saying about... Manson. The Process Church of the Final Judgment was real. It was founded in London by two former Scientologists, Marianne McLean and Robert de Grimson, uh, and they married in 1963. They developed their own system of compulsion analysis. Does that sound like anything familiar to you? A system of compulsions analysis? Sound anything like L. Ron Hubbard? Yeah, you said Scientology, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's, it's like it's like Dianetics. Yeah. Uh, process members used a P-scope in place of uh, Hubbard's okay. E-meter. So. I'm sorry. I need to stop. What is it with all just the P? It's just P everywhere. <laughs> I don't like process it. Process Church. Well, it's the Process Church. They're crazy about the letter P, which well, becomes Sanders' major mistake. Maybe just, this. I don't know, make it more than just P. It just, I don't. <laughs> it's very it's big letter. Well, Christians are all about the T. <laughs> oh my god. I, more than a letter. Please. In Thank 1966, uh, a group of the process's clients formed a religious organization. Well, I shouldn't say the process. Uh, a group of McLean and DeGrimson's clients formed a religious organization that they called the process, becoming the process Church of the Final Judgment. So initially it was just this uh, sort of like quasi-psychological treatment that they were offering. And then they developed this group of clients and the clients created a religion. It's a lot like L. Ron Hubbard. The religion uh, moved together into a commune in Mayfair. Uh, again, we're in England. This was a temporary arrangement. They moved next to Nassau and then Mexico City, where they bought a bus, not unlike Manson's black bus or Ken Kesey's electric Kool-Aid acid test, and they made their way down the Yucatan Peninsula to Stool. This is X-T-U-L, Stool, where they settled for a month until local pressure, a hurricane, and nervous parents of process members compelled them to abandon the site and return to London. Process Church began establishing centers around North America, beginning in New Orleans, with their largest center being in Toronto. They also established a center at San Francisco, where Sanders claimed Manson encountered process members and participated in their rituals. So... The things I'm telling you are true, not the things Sanders has been saying, but what I've been saying about the Process Church is true. It is true that they had centers around the world. It is, well, at least in the Americas. It is true that they had a center in San Francisco. It is true that Manson was also in San Francisco for a time, but so were a lot of other people and a lot of other churches. Sanders' book is full of odd references to the Process Church, which he never calls by its proper name. He never <laughs> calls it the Process Church of the Final Judgment, but he's always talking about them. 
The strangest stories he tells, or the strangest story I should say he tells, is of Roman Polanski being chased into a garage by a group of angry Alsatians. (laughs) I'm sorry. What? (laughs) So... Sanders, he drops in all these little anecdotes, and one of them is that Roman Polanski, one night, you know, Polanski, you know, being yeah, the yeah. husband of Sharon Tate. Well, I mean, you know that, Brie, but not everybody oh, right. who's Sorry. listening knows. You're not just talking about us. <laughs> yes. So Polanski being the husband of Sharon Tate, who would go on to be murdered by the Manson family. So, you know, Sanders is seeing all these connections, but... There's this odd story of Roman Polanski being chased into a garage by angry Alsatians. Now, Alsatians are a kind of dog. And the process church traveled with Alsatian dogs. This is absolutely true. So they, they had this like crew of dogs they brought with them to Mexico and Nassau. Uh, and there were rumors of dog sacrifice around San Francisco in the late 1960s, which Sanders attributed to the process church. So apparently they kept Alsatians as pets and loved them and carried them everywhere they went and occasionally just murdered them or sicked them on Roman Polanski. Because that makes sense. But why would they sick them on... Why, why would they do this? <clears throat> they would Is not. Is there no reason? Does he just <laughs> say that not it happens? This. It's just that apparently there was this rumor or legend of Roman Polanski being chased by Alsatian dogs and the Process Church had Alsatian dogs. I mean, this is just another way Sanders is constantly talking about Process Church, but he doesn't mention the Process Church in that moment. He just tells the story. He mentions the Alsatians. And you have to know enough about the Process Church to know that they had Alsatians and then you're at home you know, putting the pieces together yourself. There's Even no the story to put together though. He doesn't give an explanation. He doesn't say why. Because the story could be completely apocryphal. At least if you're gonna make right. up a story, make it good. Sorry. A, a court of law agrees with you, Bree. And oh. here's how I know. Original printings of Sanders' book. I got a first edition of the paperback, which was printed in 1972 include his allegations against the process church so i was able to read them in full but the process church successfully sued sanders in the united states court system and subsequent printings removed these accusations what's weird is because of differences in um censorship law or libel law uh, a british court system ruled in favor of sanders Uh, but in the united states those chapters were removed i think they were removed overall uh, because wow. of the United States case. This is not the first time Sanders is going to be sued over this book, so <laughs> it may be the first time, but it's not the last time. Good for the Process Church. As a religious movement, the Process Church preached, preached the existence of four deities, Jehovah representing strength, Lucifer representing light, Christ representing unification, and Satan representing, can you follow here? What do you think? Uh, oh, shit, so, I don't know. Christ representing unification, darkness. Satan. Lucifer. Well, we have, uh, oh yeah, I guess Lucifer was light to Jehovah's strength. So it's not really pairs, but Satan is separation. Uh, So Christ is unification, Satan is separation. Oh, I see. Gotcha. We we patterned it wrong. We did it incorrectly. (laughs) My my weird process word game. Uh, So members could worship whichever of these four deities they chose. You could pick your your favorite. And each member was themselves composed of the traits of at least two of these archetypal deities. None of these deities were supposed to be gods. Or none of these gods, sorry. None of these deities were gods. My mistake there. Yes, they were (laughs) gods. Uh, But none of them were supposed to be evil. Notice that Satan and Lucifer are light and separation, not evil or child murder. 
True evil, and this actually sounds weirdly like the Discordians, true evil was the gray forces of conformity. Do you remember, Olivia, Mr. Grayface, I think was the name of their devil? Boring old Mr. Grayface. You know, a lot happened. <laughs> yes. A lot was been a while. That yeah, but it's weird. I don't remember, but vaguely, yeah. It's right around the same time period, the Discordians the, the and uh, the Process Church. But anyway, so true evil was the gray forces of conformity, which I think the Discordians might agree with. The final judgment, uh, judgment of the church's name was a millennial unification of the four gods. So all four gods are ultimately going to come together following Christ's teaching to love your enemy. In other words, love between the oppositional deities would bring them all together. So Christ is sort of like, Christ has got the last word on this. He's going to unify everyone. That's the process? That's the process. That's the final judgment of the process. Hmm. I can actually understand this. Wow. There's a logic to it. It didn't catch on. It went away. Yeah. But Their rituals included baptisms and hymns. They strictly controlled the use of drugs and alcohol, which they said distracted from spiritual work. Hmm. Uh, and now here's where it gets real. Their symbol was made up of four interlocking P's. Oh my god. Here's that P again. Wait, wait, wait. with the P. This is a possible inspiration for the legend of the 4P or 4Pi movement. What? This is a huge legend that's really taken on a life of its own. Uh, But you gotta follow me on this. It's gonna be worth it. The 4P movement, the 4Pi movement. Sanders mentions two groups for which there is no meaningful evidence, but have nevertheless become part of the Manson legend in large part because of the book. The first is the Circe Order of Dog Blood. Oh, I'm sorry. What? I didn't mean to start laughing. That doesn't at even that. make sense. It's a beautiful name. I was going to call the podcast that, but Olivia said no. <laughs> I did. My hammer went down. <laughs> She's she said goat blood maybe, dog blood we're not going that way. Yeah, no. agreed. <laughs> so, Cersei Order of Dog Blood, the probably uh, entirely legendary Cersei Order of Dog Blood, was supposed to have led, been led by a woman, their Cersei of the title, who gathered with members on a secluded beach to sacrifice black animals, including cats and dogs. Cersei, who some believed to be process founder Marianne McLean, was said to have operated an occult bookshop in Toledo, Ohio, where she sacrificed humans. I think John Todd may have had a bookshop right around Toledo, if not in Toledo. I'm not going to ask if you remember that, Bree. It has been I a while. Correct, <laughs> it's been a year. No, I remember It sounds that right, doesn't it? I remember yeah. Toledo, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure so, that's where the bookshop was. And uh, actually, Pascal Beverly Randolph had some uh, had an uh, episode in Toledo. Maybe he died in Toledo. Mm. Anyhow, s- story, t- we should do a Toledo occult connections episode. Just, just Toledo. Just Toledo. Yep. Today we talk about Toledo. We'll go to Toledo. So <laughs> Sanders, <laughs> Sanders claimed uh, that this group inspired Manson's family to create pornographic snuff films. So the Cersei Order of Dog Blood inspired Manson to create pornographic snuff films in which the family killed and dismembered animals and at least one human girl. Sanders interviewed a boy claiming to be a... Have you guys heard of this human girl that they sacrificed? No, I'm just confused as to why they call themselves the dog blood when there's so much other blood. There's blood everywhere. 
Sanders interviewed a boy claiming to be a witness, not to these sacrifices, but to movies of the sacrifices. <laughs> what, what does that mean? So Sanders finds this kid who says, I didn't see Manson and the family sacrifice a girl, but I watched a movie of it. They wore black hoods and crosses, sacrificed a dog, rubbed the dog's body on the bodies of two naked girls. And remember this for the future. Rubbed animal carcasses on the naked bodies of a couple of Manson girls. That will be back in a future episode. All right, it is now put into my archive. <laughs> not not Manson girls, but yeah, anyway, the rubbing of, of animal but corpses. Yes. The internet didn't even exist yet, right? Like, what? No internet. We're, t- we're yeah. still. So, how did. Okay. Not in the sense we have it. I mean, if there is any internet, it's like in a military thing. Yeah. So, legit. Right. So, this kid is like, I literally saw this. Someone has this. Someone had the VHS, yeah. And they showed it to him. Where is it, kid? Sanders never the saw proof. the movies. Uh, oh, oh, let me, I'm sorry, let me, so I didn't finish the story. Uh, after the naked girls had the animals rubbed on them, they poured blood on a couple having sex, and then they decapitated a girl, a human girl. This is so much, okay. There's too much uh, happening. Oh. <laughs> too much How going on. How long is this? Sanders never saw the movies. The boy never saw the rituals face-to-face, and decapitation played no part in the murders that family members were convicted of. Right? <laughs> Is that accurate? Yeah. A lot of um, also that was missing from the murders, so... Yeah. Later accounts of ritual evil, most notably by Michelle Smith, coming up next episode, would revive some of this imagery... And we'll get there. So just remember those flayed and bloody animal corpses being rubbed on naked girls. While it's unlikely that Marianne McLean of the Process Church ever operated such a shop or even lived in Toledo in the 1960s, the Process Church was also the inspiration for this, the legend of the 4P movement, also known as the serial killer 4Pi cult. Sanders calls it the 4P movement in the first editions of his book, which is very likely a tie to the Process Church with its 4P logo. This is a major sort of urban legend, the serial killer 4P cult. You guys, I don't know if you've heard of it by that name, but when I begin to describe it to you, you'll say, oh yeah. Picking up at least in part on this legend, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, made and retracted a series of bizarre claims about taking instructions from a dog and belonging to a murderous cult. The unsolved Uh, Zodiac killings have also spawned rumors that the Zodiac killer is a member of 4Pi. So the notion that Berkowitz, Zodiac, and Manson have any meaningful causal connection to each other is titillating, uh, but incredibly unlikely. No, it doesn't doesn't happen. No. No. There's no evidence that anything like a four pie movement ever existed. Have you have both you've you've come across this though, right? Haven't you seen I've stories like this? this? Yeah, I have. You, yeah, I've heard it in reference to um to Berkowitz, but yeah. mostly just cuz he had a lot of crazy crazy shit to say, so. <laughs> Olivia, have you heard up. this story? No, I've never heard of this four pie thing. But have you ever heard of a serial killer cult? No. Oh. I've heard of it as a serial killer cult thing, but the four pie part. That just seems crazy to me to lump a bunch of people with a bunch of different motives and reasons. And Yeah, I don't think it makes sense. 
into like a golf club. I don't understand. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so like Sanders doesn't do that. It's not really Sanders' fault. Okay. It's Sanders creates the legend, and then later, Berkowitz, I think, intentionally latches onto it. Yeah, he but does. Zodiac, That's what heard about. Z- the Zodiac, you know, chasers and believers lump Zodiac into it. Do you see? So it like takes on a life of its own. No wonder people are suing this dude. I mean, not over this, but... Right, it's dangerous stuff. The most likely explanation for all of this is that the 4P movement is a legend that Sanders accidentally created as he transcribed mangled rumors about the Process Church from his various informants of California who just saw their logo and decided it was the 4P movement. But they had nothing to do with serial murder. Yeah, Yeah. it doesn't make sense. Let's get a little crazier. Let's talk about the Solar Lodge of the OTO. See, this is where I'm, I'm like, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Because Ordo Templi Orientis makes it sound like Crowley? Or what? Well, yeah, but then also I'm like, just, why do they think Manson has time for all this? <laughs> he really doesn't. And like- also, he just doesn't come across to me as the kind of guy who can be, like, not the leader of a group and be a part of a group. So Sanders says that Manson, quote-unquote, frequented, speaking of time, the home of Georgina and Richard Brayton, founders of the Solar Lodge who lived on West, 13th, uh, West 30th Street sorry, in Los Angeles. Cult member Richard Patterson ran a gas station where, according to Sanders, they attempted to convert customers. I think this may be true. Um, connecting them up to Manson prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi's helter-skelter theory, Sanders says the Solar Lodge held magical meetings to radiate hate vibrations in an effort to spark a race war. Oh my God. Linking them up to the Circe cult, he says that the first two grades of the cult didn't have to drink animal blood, but the higher grades did. This, says Sanders, is where Manson got the idea for his animal sacrifices and blood drinking, which is all on VHS tapes that some kids saw. In his short history of the Solar Lodge, Peter Robert Koenig says that during Aleister Crowley's lifetime, there was only one lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis active in the U.S., the second Agape Lodge. Crowley's successor, Carl Germer, uh, closed the lodge in 1953. Gene Brayton became acquainted with the founders of the second Agape Lodge and decided to reboot the OTO unofficially without the blessing of the original in the form of the Solar Lodge. Members broke into the homes of official OTO members, including Israel Regardé, to steal documents related to running a lodge. In August 1969, when the Manson murders were committed, the Solar Lodge was embroiled in its own controversy. A six-year-old boy living at the lodge's desert commune, this is all true, accused the lodge of confining him inside a packing crate for 56 days after he set fire to a building on the lodge's property. Oh my god. Yikes. Yeah, so this was an unfortunate coincidence. In their own investigation of the lodge, the FBI made no connection between Brayton's group and Manson. Brayton also successfully sued Sanders, and later editions of the family omitted any mention of the Solar Lodge of the OTO. Damn, everyone is just like, take your na- take my name out of your shit. Right, we can confine a boy in a box for 56 days, but uh, I will not be in that book. No, no. <laughs> get, get her name out of there. Yeah. All right. While we might dispute the influence of these various groups, Sanders doubles down and goes full conspiracy theory on us, conjuring what he calls the Fraternity of Lucifer, a Satanist cabal who preys on the stupid and indoctrinates them into their evil rights. This fraternity, Sanders implies, is an international group 
tied to the worshippers of Kali in India who perform human sacrifice to their goddess. We are not going to address these claims today, but I am going to refer new confessors to our Kali episode, which Bri and Olivia are both on. There you go. <laughs> oh, wow. A year yeah, ago. we are. We are. Uh, more than a year ago. Uh, and also, I'm going to be talking about this again uh, when we talk about the Tantra in a couple of series. This year, we're going to talk about Tantra. So, something to look forward to. In America, according to Sanders, the fraternity hosts so-called occult classes as a cover for their recruitment efforts, and as the murders retroactively demonstrate, this is the way they must have recruited Manson, and by extension, his entire family. A hidden organization operating under the cover of these other groups becomes like any other conspiracy cabal. It's theorized without the theorist offering any evidence for its existence, and by virtue of its extreme secrecy, impossible to disprove. So you may be saying, but I've never heard of a fraternity of Lucifer. And Sanders says, then it's working. (laughs) I hate it. Oh, boy. (laughs) I mean, and that occult, occult knowledge that he has to right as shit but i mean if you're thinking well rob why are you telling me the history of things that are not true it's because we don't understand the degree to which the myth of a satanic cabal long predates both the current moment when we're hearing about elite satanic cabals and the 1980s when it really had its heyday it goes back to 72 1972 i mean of course as we know from the black mass it goes back to ancient, you know, the ancient world. Uh, But in a very specific American way, it dates too long before Michelle Smith and Lawrence Prester's book, uh, Michelle Remembers, and the the daycare panics. it's, It's just amazing how much of this was out there in the culture beginning with Sanders' book, right here, right here with Charlie Manson. In many ways, it's Manson's fault. Not not that Manson intended it or is to blame, actually. Manson is to blame for a lot of things. Sanders did it because of what he heard about Manson and uncritically repeated. Speaking of which, uh, we're going to pause right now for some Manson quotes read by Dan Rosendale, Eye of the Archive. Uh, Dan, take it away. This is Manson quote one. He come to me with money in his hand. He offered me. I didn't ask him. I wasn't knocking someone's door down. I was running from that. When I got out, I was in that. I was already through that. I had that. I had the studio. I went to the studio. Went to Vox Studios. I had it all and I looked at it and I said, this is a bigger jail than I just got out of. I don't want to take my time going to work. I got a motorcycle and a sleeping bag. And 10 to 15 girls. What the hell I want to go off in it and go to work for? Work for what? Money? I got all the money in the world. I'm the king, man. I run the underworld, guy. I decide who's does what way they do it at. When am I gonna run around and act like I'm some teeny bopper somewhere for somebody else's money? I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game is mine. I deal the cards. And this is Manson quote number two. Oh, oh, I don't know pain. I don't know pain. I have no depth of pain. I have no depth of suffering. I don't know ridicule. I don't know all the bad things. I've been punished by you all my life since I was 10 years old. I've been in every reform school you got across the country. I used to lay down and have to get my ass whooped till I couldn't walk. Tell me about some pain. 
No, no fault. Make strong, good pain. Understand pain. Pain's not bad. It's good. It teaches you things. It teaches you things. Like when you put your hand in fire, ow, you know, and I drew that again. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. So did Manson ever, like, when did Sanders come out with his, his shit? Because did, did Charles Manson read it? I'm sure he did. I guess it's my... I'm sure he did. My question? Well, I guess I'm not sure he did, but it seems likely that he... I mean, you tell me. What, is he the kind of person who would read it? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know, but if he did, um, he's not the type of person to sit by and let people say what they think about him. He's always very quick to correct people. If that makes well, sense. Well, he also just... I don't know. He just... This contributes to his legend to and his power. People. Yeah. Yeah, but like also, when you like, look at interviews, he just he uses what people think about him to, you know, yeah, be an exaggerate or did to be an exaggerated personality. But yeah, I yeah. don't know. All right, next topic is Manson and the New Age. Ooh, Ooh New Age! <laughs> oh, we both so did we that. did Satan We're doing it. Now let's do the Ubiu New Age. After Beach Boy Dennis Wilson's manager threw the family out of Wilson's house, Manson went to the Spawn Movie Ranch, which was home to a number of itinerant types and made arrangements for the family to come and stay and work there. The blind owner, George Spawn, seems to have grown to like having the family around and even had a kind of relationship with Squeaky Frome, which you can see a bit of in the movie. Yeah, they did, actually. I remember... Oh, they did kind of... Sort of do that. She in was movie, living it big in the actual ranch house where they were all slummed in the like where the yeah. rest of the family was. She was like, shoot, if all I have to do is sleep with this dude. But she didn't really, I don't even know if she actually slept with him. I'm pretty sure she did, though. It, it's Sanders believes she did, yeah. So yeah, I'm pretty sure she did. But she was like, shoot, I get to live in the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sanders' account of the family's life on the ranch is full of references to the family's fringe spirituality. So getting now to the new age, this included psychically sensing which grocery stores had the best food in their dumpsters and engaging with an apocalyptic cult called the Fountain of the World to the west of the ranch. Uh, I'm sorry. They're just talking to all kinds of people going all over the place, doing all kinds of things with so many groups. Busy, busy, busy. busy. They're finding every weird alternative underground religion in California. What time did they even have to drop acid like what <laughs> yeah. what time honestly <laughs> only saturdays so <laughs> manson also practiced a crowley-esque rite of sexual exhaustion in which he'd have sex with one of his women for three or four hours until the act pushed her beyond the limits of her ego maybe that's true uh who knows the fountain of the world though i that sounds made up but sanders also relates confusingly how they burnt the magical library of a resident of the back part of the ranch this guy's name was richard kaplan when spawn allowed the family to move to the back of the ranch uh presumably says sanders because manson didn't like books but if he's such an occulty guy i don't know why he would burn magical books oh well there you go then he wouldn't have read a book about himself Mm. oh yeah Yeah, if he didn't like books On an invitation from teenager Kathy Myers, uh, Manson and his family boarded their latest bus and ventured down to Death Valley, where her grandmother had a ranch in Golar Wash. You guys know about this period in the Manson family? 
life. Yeah. The Death Valley shit, yeah. Yeah. So after staying a couple of days there, Manson couldn't persuade the grandmother to let them stay on, so they moved to the nearby and nearly abandoned Barker Ranch around Halloween 1968. It was as remote, Sanders says, as Stool. Stool, Mexico, that is. Another unnecessary reference to the Process Church. Oh my god. <laughs> There's just no reason to bring them up in this context. The Barker Ranch was as remote as a small town in Mexico where the Process Church happened to live for a little bit. Completely unrelated. They yeah. Oh, I yeah. Wonder. Yeah. It's just pernicious. So in Death Valley, Manson became obsessed with a giant hole called the Devil's Hole, which was the center of a Hopi <laughs> legend about an underground world from which the Hopi people emerged. What, Brie? You're not obsessed I'm with sorry. a giant hole? I, <laughs> it's true. Devil's hole. It also made me think of the dead. Get on wall. board. What do you call it? The Satan's anus? Satan's <laughs> anus, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> <It's> our local <laughs> Halloween attractive uh, attraction. The What is the, it called? What's the real name? The Devil's... Uh... Uh, playground yeah devil's playground yeah i always call it satan's anus or something like that yeah. <laughs> are you you kids going to satan's anus this halloween yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad we did this oh, well speaking of which uh manson did go to the devil's anus on halloween 1968 nice uh, oh. and there was a hopi legend around it this is the site where the hopi people emerged manson hoped one day to be able to drain the water from inside the hole and pass through it to an underground city where they might live out a utopian ideal of communal life. Mm. Gotta dream big. Taking the hole at face value, which you have to whenever you confront a hole, it's difficult not to do some psychoanalysis on a man who literally wants to crawl back through a giant vagina into the womb of the earth but again, let's let's resist the temptation to diagnose Charlie today. We are not qualified. I don't think anyone is. Do you guys have you heard? Did you hear about the Devil's Hole, or is this the first time? Oh you've heard no, about I've it? heard about this. You know about Charlie's hole obsession. Help it. Yeah, Wait, yeah, of course. No, it is funny. So, I mean, everything else is scary and, and uh, murderous, but that's a very funny hole. So, mm. and a mystical hole for the Hopi people who probably did not call it that. <laughs> <laughs> sure they had a much more elegant name or do can ter- currently have a much more elegant name uh not entirely related to this all manson also listened to the beatles white album for the first time while he was at the barker ranch songs that sanders calls quoting here gems of snuff what? by that he means celebrations of violent death oh, oh god on the white album now, I will admit, and maybe this makes me uncool, I do very much like the White Album. Might be my favorite. So, among the songs, maybe it makes me cool. I don't freaking know. I also listen to Frank Zappa. Suck it. So, among those... <laughs> All right, Rob. Among... <laughs> Sorry. A little defensive there. <laughs> I don't know. Because, you know, the Beatles, yeah. pe- people get a lot of shit for liking the Beatles. Because, you know, everybody likes the Beatles. I like pet sounds too, Olivia. So among among the songs on the White Album is Rocky Raccoon. Fair enough, uh, Sanders. I got you there. Although I personally sing that song to my child at bedtime, uh, and I've always thought of it more as a picaresque misadventure in which the title character will truly get better soon at the end. Uh, but yes, there are guns that are shot. <laughs> Sanders also, okay. here's where it gets weirder. Do you know this song? Yeah. Yeah fell back in his room only to find Gideon's Bible. So, 
Rocky had come equipped with a gun. So, <clears throat> oh my God. <laughs> it's a lovely bedtime song. It's a lovely bedtime song. Anyway, so uh-huh. she loves it. So <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> I also sing Yellow Submarine. Sanders oh, also nice. mentions, right, that's more, yeah. more child-friendly. Sanders also mentions the song Blackbird, in which Paul McCartney encourages a blackbird to, quote, take these broken wings and learn to fly, which has widely been interpreted as the Beatles' love letter to America's civil rights movement, with the blackbird being African Americans. This is by no means a snuff song, but according (laughs) according to Sanders, it is a snuff song. All right. So I guess taking these broken wings and learning to fly is about murdering white people. I don't even know. That's what Paul McCartney wants black people to it's do. Such a peaceful song. I don't. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful, right? It's a beautiful piece of music. So. Yeah. Manson says Sanders interpreted these tracks as racial doom songs, encouraging African Americans to rise up and riot. Ultimately, Sanders Manson believed that the blacks would take over the U.S and then hand power over to him when they realized that Manson was the superior overlord as far as overlords go. So black people won't take over, and they're going to say, you know, we need a white man to run this. Where's Charlie yeah. Manson? Yeah, let's pick the guy who's been to prison a couple of times, <laughs> who just lives out in the desert and does drugs. Where's, where's that's that guy? Our, that's our leader. I mean, he we was need really to find someone who's whispering into a for, To go under, yeah, he was... Basically, like, let's go underground and wait it out. Let's get in that hole. Find us a yeah. man in a hole, said African Americans as they took and over that America. Man, that crazy, <laughs> that was... tiny, sprightly man will be our They savior. lift him out of the hole. There's Manson. <laughs> yep. Okay. He believed that the Beatles were speaking to him through the record, particularly the songs Helter Skelter and Revolution Number no. 9. Uh, which, if you don't know, the White Album Revolution Number no. 9 is basically an experimental jumble of song sounds, uh, not to be confused with their song Revolution, which is a song with words, mm-hmm. other than number 9, number 9. Uh, so really, there was no way to listen. You couldn't find a message in there, but I guess you, you can get where a person who's a little off could read into that. The Beatles apparently were telling Charlie, Charlie sent us a telegram, and rise words that aren't on either of those tracks yeah helter skelter has a tune and it varies very clear kind of thing but the what what the meaning of it is i guess is very vague which is you know a lot of beatles songs the meaning is tremendously vague yeah yeah so lucy in the sky with diamonds the hell is that (laughs) well that was definitely about drugs it's an acid trip yeah, but I mean, I, 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 yeah, it's about an acid trip, but what does it all mean? About as much mm. as nowhere, man, please listen. I mean, so, initially, <laughs> one of the oldest human set of human remains was found was named after that song. The really? first Australopithecus we oh, found, yeah, yeah. yeah, they named her Lucy because yeah. uh, the, oh, really? I the guy who found her was listening to the song. At the time. Yeah. Hmm. Go Lucy. So let's. here comes the question. How much of this is based in fact? Uh, and that actually is very difficult to say. Sanders has a habit, as I've mentioned, of sharing fantastic lore that the family circulated about Manson, which confuses me as the reader as to which of these stories Sanders believes. 
Paul Watkins, known for his ability to enter trance on command. There's a story of him going into a five-day trance, and he can only be awakened when Manson wraps his, uh, that is to say, Watkins privates in Manson's own vest as a diaper. I'm sorry, Rather what? Than... <laughs> so, what? I don't understand so Watkins... what you just said to me. So Watkins is he's in a trance, which means uh-huh. he's, you know, naturally peeing himself and stuff because he's been out for five days. Uh, and to, and he, nobody can wake him up. So Manson takes off his magic vest. You know, Manson had that vest oh, that they venerated. Uh, and he wraps it around the man as a diaper. And so uh, immediately the man wakes up because okay, he doesn't so want to pee in the vest. From what you said the first time, I thought that the man's genitalia was being wrapped around Manson. That's <laughs> <laughs> a vest. I just, I just pictured Manson giving it a hug. I was very confused. <laughs> yeah, I was picturing a very... Uh, so Manson was wearing a penis as a vest for Brie, yeah. and for Olivia, he was just <laughs> hugging a penis. Okay. Well, like, I thought you meant that he was wearing his vest, and that he, I don't know, I was very yeah. confused. <laughs> it was rough. <laughs> in another episode, a young masochist named Bo, a girl, bit Manson's penis in half during fellatio, and Manson magically Shit. fused and healed himself then and there. Oh. What a time. Okay. He just tells these stories unqualified if sanders thinks these stories are ridiculous what does he make of manson's hypnotism caper on mcneil island or his engagement with the 4p movement is it all just nonsense or is some of it real sanders leaves us guessing and the guessing leaves too much room for readers to wonder if magically endowed satanly satanically inspired boogeymen are truly out to get them after manson left the ranch in Death Valley, to check in on his parole officer in early 1969, the family came to believe that the area around Devil's Hole was being protected by a Scientologist miner's magical beams. One more time. The family came to believe that a Scientologist miner, not as in child, but as a person who mines for minerals, was using magical beams to keep them away from the Devil's Hole. Okay. What? Who is this miner that is also a scientologist that's just chilling. oh sanders does give his name but i didn't put it in my notes he's a he's oh. a real guy i guess huh. i mean he probably is real anyhow uh manson would eventually make it back to the barker ranch as you both know because that's where he is found hiding in a cabinet and arrested for his involvement in the murders carried out by the family yep one more time dan rosendale with some manson quotes this is Manson quote three. What difference does it make? You know, a long time ago being crazy meant something. Nowadays, everybody's crazy. So, I mean, you know, like, you know, it's anonymous. It's a uh, irony, man. It's a paradox. I mean, are you crazy? Dressed in black, you think I don't know everything that goes with that black you dressed in? <laughs> yeah. This is Manson quote four. You know, if I wanted to kill somebody, I'd take this book and beat you to death with it, and I wouldn't feel a thing. It'd be just like walking to the drugstore. Do you feel blame? Are you mad? Do you feel like Wooskawas are running rannis? Rannis? Alright. We ready for me to close this on up? Then you guys can hold forth as you like. All right, so I, I really haven't talked about the murders themselves today, and, and uh, that's appropriate because that's not really what the subject is. We're supposed to be talking about the legends that came out of this event. But the murders are what made Manson famous. So uh, I, I have shared this uh, on 
at least on our Patreon special about this, although maybe I did on the John Todd episode, I'm going to give you my preferred version of the Manson murders themselves to close up here. I did, yeah, I shared it on John Todd. Okay, so let me summarize. Bobby Beausoleil, who was a reasonably talented musician and performer himself, operated fairly independently of Manson, but regularly hooked his small group up with Manson's much larger family moving in and out of their circle. Beausoleil was staying with UCLA PhD student and musician Gary Hinman when he met Manson, an arrangement that would come and go as Beausoleil lived his own nomadic life moving from place to place. Over time, Manson became convinced that Hinman had money and property and persuaded Beausoleil, along with Mary Brunner and Susan Atkins, to try and get Hinman to join the family. When Hinman refused, Beausoleil, Brunner, and Atkins held him hostage for two days. Manson arrived and sliced his ear with a homemade sword and instructed Beausoleil on how to stage Hinman's murder. On July the 27th, 1969, Beausoleil stabbed Hinman repeatedly and then took turns with Atkins and Brunner, smothering him with a pillow, eventually killing him. He then wrote Political Piggy on the wall in Hinman's blood, which inspired prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi's controversial but still dominant theory that Manson was trying to start a race war. Beausoleil was arrested on August 6th, and three days later, Manson orchestrated the Tate-LaBianca murders. Family members Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel murdered Sharon Tate, then eight and a half months pregnant, along with three friends and another visitor at the house she rented with Roman Polanski at 10050 CLO Drive. How else do you say that? 10,050 CLO Drive? Anyway, the purpose of this second crime was no more complex than as a means to get Beausoleil, Brunner, and Atkins off the hook for their first crime. It was staged with bloody writing on the wall, helter-skelter misspelled so as to resemble the Hinman scene. If Beausoleil, Brunner, and Atkins were in jail and this murder had been committed, then the detectives and prosecutors would figure they couldn't have the guilty parties for the first crime. Uh, the killers were still on the loose. If Manson imagined a race war or had thought of revenge against Terry Melcher, for example, or the Hollywood elite who rejected him, that was secondary to his primary goal to rescue the imprisoned members of his family. And certainly Satan had nothing to do with any of it, at least from the perspective of ritual or belief. So that's my take on the murders. And that's why Manson's famous as these murders. Uh, but the logic of the murders is, is very much about the family and not about any grander schemes. By no means did Sanders write an entirely bad book about Charlie Manson and his family. Before I say good things about his book, <laughs> which I am going to do, I want to say one more bad thing, which I didn't put in my notes, but it, it has to be said. Sanders also does some victim blaming. So, for example, he mentions things like Roman Polanski having an occult-themed party to celebrate Rosemary's Baby, which was a hit, his first hit movie. Uh, he mentions Abigail Folger and Gary Hinman uh, being engaged with, or at least taking drugs, in Hinman's case, maybe selling drugs. None of these facts of their personal biographies, he mentions a sort of like experimental sex, uh, particularly in, in the Tate-LaBianca situation. None of this stuff, though, says that is, is any reason why Manson's family killed these people. It is nothing to their... They're completely unrelated. Whether or not they had alternative lifestyles did not then make them 
perfect or even likely victims of Manson's family. It was always fairly random from the start. Would you disagree with that, you two? Um, the only thing that I think specifically made them targets was the property. Because Manson had visited it before. Yeah, and because, Is that what you uh, mean? because of Melcher. used to own it, yeah. Yeah, yeah Terry yeah. Melcher. But uh, otherwise, a complete yeah. accident. It really had nothing yeah. to do with any of the things Sharon Tate did in her free time or Abigail Folger. Or and, and the one kid who Gary got Hannon. killed, um, he wasn't even in the house. He was just dropping something off. Like, he wasn't even involved at all. His oh, name was yeah. Parrot. He got he shot to... by, I think, Tex shot him, point blank. Didn't it's like even a see delivery? It yeah, it was, was like a delivery guy? or something. To yeah. the guy in the uh, who was happened to be occupying the gatehouse, right? Or the yeah. front house. Yeah. Um, he didn't even see it coming. By no means... Uh, okay, what I'm saying is this is not an entirely bad book, so I just trash it again. Okay, but there's a tremendous amount of detail about Manson's biography, about the timeline of the crimes, and the geography of the Manson family's life and murders. Incredible detail This that Sanders has produced here. But... His book really needs to be read critically as a compendium of everything he heard about Manson during his years of research. Not just like, this is what happened, this is the truth, but here's a bunch of things people said about it. That's the better way to read it. Like, here's some legends of Manson. Ultimately, Sanders completely misinterpreted the motive of Manson's killing based on homegrown proto-satanic panic legends conjured and shared among the people who brushed up against or near Manson's anti-authoritarian family structure. Manson played father to a family of women who he either had sex with or controlled the sexual lives of. His family lived communally, were often naked in semi-public spaces, and traded sexual partners regularly. They were, in short, a direct affront to America's traditional family values and a living example of a kind of incestuous ritual evil brought to an apotheosis with the murder of Sharon Tate's unborn child. So if you're not seeing my connection to ritual evil from the Black Mass episode, I, I hope I've really brought it home there. Here's Manson with these girls, some adult women, some underage women, playing their father, but also playing their lover. So very incesty. And then Sharon Tate is a pregnant, very pregnant woman who dies and her unborn child is killed. These are the hallmarks of black mass activity. In the case of all the black masses we were talking about, these details were made up. In Manson's case, these details are true of the murders, and of Manson's lifestyle. But he had nothing to do with Satanism. There was no ritual involved. That's the myth that was then placed on top of him. Because he's engaging in incestuous sex, well, metaphorically incestuous sex, and because he was involved in child murder, he must be ritually evil. But it's just, that's that's the fake part. It's sort of like the opposite of the Black Mass situation. Manson and his family were a threat to our culture. And so it wasn't enough that some members committed a series of horrific murders in and around L.A. People who aren't a threat to the culture also murder. Manson's crew had to be worse than just murderers. As practitioners of supposedly ritual evil, they had to be devotees to the Prince of Darkness himself. The fact that their story, the Manson story, spread so far and captured the attention of so many that it prompted Joan Didion, among others, to claim that the family single-handedly put an end to the idealism of the 1960s means that they inadvertently played a significant role in advancing the imagined notion that the world was under attack by a secret fraternity of Lucifer out to terrorize us 
and kill us in our homes. Ladies, final thoughts. <sighs> Honestly, screw all the ritual shit. It's not real. Comes down to it. Manson knew how to pinpoint exactly what was burdening a person's soul and exploit it and use it to court them into his family. And because of that, all anybody wanted to do was please Charlie. And that's how they got into the situation they were in. Because they thought Do you believe there's doing... tapes out there? Huh? Do you believe there's tapes out there? No. I mean, okay. if there are, I don't think there are those tapes. They might have made their own, like, smut. Sure. but So that I might exist. I don't think that they did all that wild stuff. The crosses and the animal sacrifices. Yeah, but... I don't think they yeah. cared. They wouldn't have cared about anything like that, I don't think. They just... That wasn't that wasn't the alternative lifestyle they wanted to live. I think there's also like a cons- like an idea that these girls, like a lot of them were like like already in rough situations when Charlie came to them and that's just not necessarily true. Like a lot of them were just teenage girls going to high school playing the trumpet and shit one day and then the next they were like you know what my parents like i don't want to do this shit and then you know he's such a sweet talker that it was kind of because like i don't know i i think about how many of them weren't a part of the murders but still like when he was in prison like i mean like angela lansbury's kid angela lansbury's daughter was in the manson family briefly Oh, wow. She consorted with the Manson family. Yeah, she was not in in the you know not to this degree, but yeah. Well, I so, think of like Lynette with Gerald Ford, even yeah. you know, like she didn't necessarily need to do that. You could argue no one told her to do that, but I don't know. It's just interesting. Yeah, no, I get exactly what you're saying. I agree. So there it is. That's Manson. All right, let's gong it on into the old order of confessors. And if this is your first OC episode because you saw Charlie Manson, you want to hear something about Manson, hope you liked it. (laughs) Hang out. Rate, subscribe, review, all those good things. Order of Confessors now. Forgot what? Charles Manson. Really metal. Na, 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 na. I've done it the entire time. I didn't even remember that that's my thing. I'm supposed to do that. I forgot who I was. been worn out with so much Manson. Yeah, I'm kind of a little bit brain dead like I was with the uh, quantum consciousness episode, but... Yeah. That was it. We just, we've done about 90 minutes of Manson here. Yeah, we did. That's a lot. That's a lot. I so, it was uh, nice because it was different than... The normal Manson coverage, like a yeah, little bit. Yeah, I liked you know? that. Like you I came think so, about yeah. it from a different angle. Yeah. Cool. Otherwise, I wouldn't have bothered because there is more than enough Manson out there. But I think that this issue has not really been well addressed, and it's yeah. a problem because he's not inherently a culty by himself. No, I mean, I, don't, I guess yeah. according to Sanders, he's a he is. But, right, but it's all nonsense. I keep forgetting he's dead. Yeah, I know. Man- Manson is dead. I think I've said it in the like. I, I think I'm not using past tense like this whole time. <laughs> I think I've been saying it in the present. I uh, same, yeah. But <laughs> uh, speaking of reviews, uh, let me thank Dan DeBeat, who says we are a light in a dark world of misinformation. Aww. 
Danda says it's been a rough year and we've been a place that cuts away the sensational nonsense to provide honest information, which is food for Danda's heart. Danda, you are food for our heart. We're going to keep feeding your heart, my man. We are here for you. Uh, and others, yes, please help us wage the war now with conspiracy believers oh my God. <laughs> on our review page. Yeah. It is what it is. Uh, or, you know, the comment section, the freaking uh, cast box. Oh, there's all sorts of places where folks can come after us. Uh, but we know we've got a community uh, that we're working with here, and uh, we appreciate all your support. <laughs> that's. I guess that's why I felt like I, I was... We had the strength to go after these issues. Because <laughs> the internet's a scary place. I mean, people will come after you for sure. Uh, Dr. Rob! Church Secrets here. I have your I have your buddy James here with me. Hello. Hey, Rob. It's James. Listen, uh, I don't often like to do this. And, and by often, I mean ever. And by ever, I mean a snowball's chance of Beelzebub's butthole. Uh, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is I'd like to ask for, for your input on a certain symbol I happen to have found carved into the backside of my lawn jockey. Now, before you say anything, I know you're going to scold me because lawn jockeys are racist. But it's okay, because mine is Caucasian. Just like the flamingos in my daisy patch, and the pinwheel in my backyard. So you're not canceling my lawn ornaments, you intellectist. That's intellectual and elitist combined. I made it up myself. I've been trying to uh, trying it out before I bring it into the show. <laughs> Pretty cool, right? Uh, what I'm trying to say is I found this Pentagon upside down, which isn't necessarily threatening on its own, but, uh, except this one had horns. Uh, a pair of devil horns. If I ever saw devil horns, which I have not. Uh, I have not seen devil horns. I, I, I hope I never will. Devil horns. Uh, for, for a second, I thought you might have picked up. But, but I, I suppose you, you've never picked up before. So why would you pick up now? What I'm trying to say is, call me back. Our sources today include Ed Sanders' The Family, of course. That was the main one. Also, Jeffrey Melnick's Creepy Crawling, colon, Charles Manson, The Many Lives of America's Most Famous Family. A book i uh, very fond of, Bill Ellis' Raising the Devil, colon, Satanism, New Religions, and uh, the Media. And Peter Robert Koenig's History of the Solar Lodge of the OTO, Charles Manson and the Occult, on parareligion.ch. Yeah. All right, Olivia, bring us on home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting, the secret order of alchemical actors, till such a time as we get together and do it again. Uh, so we had no voices today, with the exception of the great Dan Rosendale doing his best Woo! Manson impression. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Joining me at the mic, uh, we had Brie Literal, Metallurgic Prophet. I'll see you guys. And Olivia Litterall, Grand Master of the Order. Whatever lesson there is from this to be learned, there, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That puts a point on it. My name is Rob C. Thompson. Uh, next, next time, uh, we're going to begin uh, mining the Satanic Panic proper. We're going to go a little bit out of order, actually, with our episodes, because we're going to dip back into the 70s after that. But uh, first, I want to introduce us to Michelle, Michelle Smith, who I've mentioned several times in her book, Michelle Remembers. Uh, specifically, uh, we'll be calling our next episode, Michelle Remembers a Satanic Cult. 
Hmm. Catch you next time. I feeling that's what she was. Oh, that's what sorry. she's going to remember. <laughs> uh, here on Occult Confessions. Bye. We did it. That was intense. I didn't know it would take that long. Hour 40. Hot damn.